0: A church is the greatest institution in the world. And the greatest marching orders in the world is what we call the Great Commission. It doesn't get any higher than what Christ told his church to do. No commission tops that. You can be in the military, you can be a politician, you can be whatever. But the Great Commission given to a local church is the greatest commission there is. So we're going to start there. We're going to start with talking about the function of a church with the very... Three basic things that we are supposed to be doing. We're going to take a broad stroke, and then we're going to break it on down from there. As a church, we are to evangelize, we are to baptize, and we are to, thirdly, stabilize. Then we'll branch out from there. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience, and now, here's Pastor Skevy. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to the epistle of the uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, in the 14th chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We have been studying the church, and uh, rightly so, because Christ loved the church, and he gave himself for it, and shed his blood for it. And we've been talking about a lot of things involved in a church and how it ought to operate and the fact it needs to be done right and the fact it still works. And there's been a a, a plethora of stuff that we've looked at. But it's time for us to kind of get down to the nuts and the bolts, the function of a church, the purpose of a church, the mission of a church. There's a reason we do what we do as a church. And we try and do it as biblically as possible. I was saved out of a very traditional-minded religion that was based on a lot of man-made stuff and not the Word of God. And so I may even uh, go to extremes trying to make sure that what we do, there is a biblical reason why we do it. And we should. The Bible tells us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in verse 33, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. We skip down to verse 40. Let all things be done decently and in order. So, as we get down to the reasons and the the mission and the function and the purpose of a church, we're going to talk about a lot of things today. And so, uh, hang on. We're going to be talking about our function as a church. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we ask you now to please bless this time. Help us to listen. Father, help this to be practical, help questions to be answered. Father, I just pray now that we could find a a Bible backup for what we do, and we pray now that we would understand it better and appreciate it more, and we ask for your help to do so, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we talk about the function of a church and why we do what we do, we look at our text here, and verse 33 reminds us that this epistle is being written to a local church, and it says that God is not the author of of confusion or the originator of confusion but of peace as in all churches of the saints. Now Paul is writing to a church here that was in chaos. If you're a student of the Bible you know that the church at Corinth was perhaps the most carnal church in the New Testament yet it was recognized as a church. And so Paul spends chapters straightening stuff out and and then he reminds them that, look, God is not in this confusion within your church. The devil has gotten in. God's not the author of confusion, but of peace. He said, you ought to be pulling on the same end of the rope and working in harmony and peace and getting along. And then he says in verse number 40, let all things be done decently and in order. And that's talking about the, the function of a church. A church should be organized. Now, the devil has always fought church organization or church function or, or the purpose or mission of a church. He's always tried to derail churches. It's nothing new. And in fact, if you read in Acts 3, you'll notice where this, this guy gets saved at the temple and the high priest and the, the Sadducees and Pharisees and the, soul, the whole Sanhedrin, they call in the disciples, they ball them out, they tell them not to preach in the name of Christ anymore, they threaten them, they beat them up, but... They go right back to preaching and carrying on church as always. And we see an attack there from without. But you go a few chapters further and you find that the devil tries to uh, derail the church with an attack from within. There's murmuring going on there in Acts chapter 6. There's complaining. And it's just the devil. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our, our battle is not really with people so much as the devil that's operating behind the people. And so the devil will fight from without, the devil will fight from within, but when a church is functioning properly, here's what happens. In Acts 12, 24, it says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. If we're doing church right, it will work, and the word of God will grow, and souls will be saved, and the church will multiply, and and that's the goal. Now, all the doctrine that we have, all that we stand for, all the standards, all the truth, all of that is in vain if we're not carrying out a church the way it needs to be carried out. God has a message. That's this book right here. But God also has a method, a way of carrying out New Testament church Christianity. And we can't get derailed by the devil. We can't get diverted by the devil. We have got to stay on the course. Jesus Christ promised in Matthew 16, 18 that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. That is the promise of God Himself, a God who cannot lie. But that devil, the devil himself will go down clawing and, and kicking and scratching, trying to bring the church down. We have a promise from our Lord that the gates of hell won't prevail, but the devil is going to do all that he can. In fact, I, I find this ironic. We know what the epistle to the Ephesians is, just a few books from here. That was a church started about Oh, 25 years after the time that Jesus Christ ascended and went back to heaven. And when the epistle is written, that church is going great guns. It's red hot for God. It's steamrolling the devil. But you know, about 35 or 40 years after that, Jesus Christ addresses that church in the book of the Revelation, chapter 2 and verse 4. And he says, Thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Notice they had derailed. They had gotten off course. They weren't doing the first works. And Christ has to tell them, repent. And it only took a few decades. That's a church that had only been around, oh, a few years longer than we have here. Now, this is a very exciting place. We've had folks saved this week already. I didn't even mention that. And, and, and there's a lot going on here. And, and I, I look so forward to coming to church. You'd have to be dead from the waist up not to be getting anything out of church right now here because I'm telling you, this is an exciting place. It really is. But it doesn't mean that we are beyond or we're immune from the devil attacking us and this very same thing happening to us. We have to be sure we don't lose our first love. We cannot get sidetracked. We cannot get professional. We cannot even get political. Let me explain what I mean by that. There are churches that were going along and and doing well, and all of a sudden they got more into politics and the business of reaching the world for Christ and populating heaven. Years ago, there was an organization called the Moral Majority. Some of you, how many of you remember the Moral Majority? Started by an independent Baptist preacher. And honestly, it it did a great work, and and may have even gotten presidents elected, for all we know. But it wasn't the mission of the church, and eventually that pastor said, you know what, I've gotten sidetracked. I'll never forget when he went online, he said that, and he said, I need to get back to the business of preaching the gospel. Well, I don't ever want to get out of the business of preaching the gospel. It can get a church sidetracked. A church is the greatest institution in the world. You can't top it. There's all kinds of organizations out there that you can be a part of. But the greatest institution in the world is the local New Testament church. And the greatest marching orders in the world are the great is what we call the Great Commission. It doesn't get any higher than what Christ told his church to do. No commission tops that. You can be in the military, you can be a politician, you can be whatever. But the Great Commission given to a local church is the greatest commission there is. So we're going to start there. We're going to start with talking about the function of a church with the very three basic things that we are supposed to be doing. We're going to take a broad stroke, and then we're going to break it on down from there. As a church, we are to be evangelizing, or to evangelize. We are to baptize, and we are to, thirdly, stabilize. Then we'll branch out from there. First of all, we're to evangelize. We're to evangelize. We're to seek and save That which is lost. That's what Christ said He came to do in Luke 19.10. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You say, but didn't He come to heal people? Yeah, yeah, He did. He opened blind eyes. He unstopped deaf ears. He even raised people from the dead. He was a great teacher and a great leader and all of that. But He tells us the reason why He came to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, my wife and I were talking recently, and it is a busy place around here. It's like a beehive, and there's just so much going on. It's really exciting. It's really fun. But, you know, you can get so busy in the ministry that you forget the business of, of being a personal witness for Christ. And there is something, there's something really something missing in my life when I'm not being a personal witness the way I ought to be and and trying to reach people for Christ. And we all could use refreshers on this. And and the staff, we just talked about it here a little while ago before we came in here, we can even get stale. Pray for us. Jesus Christ never lost it. Jesus Christ was continually reaching out and evangelizing. He did it personally. He did it one-on-one. In fact, he would would talk to a fellow like Nicodemus there in John chapter 3. And uh, no crowd around, nobody knew what he was doing. It except Nicodemus, and he witnessed to him, or it might be a woman at the well in the following chapter there, John chapter four. But he had his, his individual times of one-on-one witnessing, and then he had his times of witnessing to groups and even multitudes, thousands of people. And, and so we need to follow the example of our Christ. Uh, And and the New Testament church is God's agency for reaching the world. I'm not saying there's not lots of other agencies trying to do it. There are a lot of what we would call parachurch organizations, some better than others, and I'm thankful for some of them at least. But the Great Commission in its purest form was given to a local church. We need to understand that we have that responsibility. The Great Commission in Matthew 28.20 ends with this, with Christ saying, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now, we've talked about this before. There were uh, several men, maybe 11 men around him at that time. We would say it was his church. But they as individuals were not receiving that commission. And, And this is important that we understand this. The Great Commission was not just given to Christians in general. It was given to the Lord's church because he tells them that he'd be with them until the end of the world. Were those 11 men still around 100 years from the time that commission was given? No, they're all dead. So he wasn't talking to them as individuals. He was talking to them corporately as a church. So the Great Commission, the you in that verse, I'm with you all the to the end of the world. The you there is a local church. Now, if, if you believe that the church is made up of all Christians... If you believe, as as many do, most do in fact, that it is universal, it's it's not really a a local, visible assembly of people, but it's a a universal, invisible, mystical kind of a thing just out there, then you're off the hook. Or at least it's so watered down that that you just say, well, I'm one of millions of Christians, it's not that big of a responsibility. But if you believe that the church is a local, visible, called out assembly, which it really is, the, the Greek word ekklesia teaches that, then that responsibility, that privilege, falls on us. It really brings it home. You know that Christ said in Matthew 16 or 16:19, 16, "I will give unto thee that church, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven." This was given to the church at Jerusalem, which started another church, which started another church, which started other churches. And through the process of multiplication with proper authority, these churches kept starting, and that commission was handed down. And now to us in the 21st century, we have the keys, and what we bind on earth, Christ recognizes. It's sanctioned in heaven. It's bound in heaven, he tells us here. 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, mentions the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. We have the truth, and now we have a responsibility to get it to the regions beyond. God acts through the local church. God works through the local church. And so we are to evangelize. And could I just, could I just challenge each, each church member here to seek out just one person that you are going to try and reach for Christ? Befriend them love them, pray for them, witness to them, take them through the seven steps to God. But in the, in the year to come, just one, each one reach one, just one. And, and that makes it very practical, and, and, and it really brings it home to where we can operate. Number one, we are to evangelize. Number two, we're to baptize. Now, look, if you would, back in John chapter 3. This past uh, weekend, we saw... Folks baptized in this baptistry behind me. We will see more baptized this coming weekend. What's with this immersing people beneath the water thing? Is there some scriptural grounds for that? Yes, there is. After we evangelize and we reach someone with the gospel and they, they receive Christ as Lord and Savior, the next step is for us to scripturally baptize them. That is the pattern found in the Bible. In John 3 and in verse number 22, After these things came Jesus and his disciples unto the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. They were winning folks to Christ, and they were scripturally baptizing them afterwards. In fact, look across the page in chapter 4, verse 1. says, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. Notice they get saved first, he made disciples, and then they were baptized. Now, a lot of emphasis is made in a lot of churches of our stripe on soul winning. Soul winning, soul winning, soul winning. And it's gotten to be kind of a game in some churches, in fact. Just get them to pray this prayer. Just ABC, repeat after me, kind of a thing. And they call that soul winning. But winning someone to Christ, if they even got saved, is only one-third of the Great Commission. If they are not scripturally baptized, we've dropped the ball. You know, we count conversions quite often. We ought to count baptisms because that's taking the next step. So there is evangelized, there is baptized, and then thirdly, there is stabilized. And we're talking about discipleship now. And that is so important. Grounding somebody after, it's huge. There's there's no non-essentials, but this one is really huge. Now, we saw in the Great Commission a moment ago, in Matthew twenty eight twenty, Christ speaks of teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. That is discipleship. That is stabilizing. Teaching them after they get saved. And it does say all things. Observe all things. Not just the convenient stuff. That is new, new evangelicalism today where they just kind of sweep a lot of it under the carpet and they, they gush over the other part. No, teach them all things. And notice the word observe. Observe. To observe all things. Now, it's easy to, uh, to just teach it. It's another thing to observe it, isn't it? Are we observing everything? It's easy to listen. You know, we can come to a place like this and listen to the message and, and, uh, and leave, but have we observed all things? Look, if you would, in John chapter 14, just turning forward from where you are there. In John chapter 14, Christ had something very important to tell us about obedience, observing those things. In John 14 and verse 15, He says, If you love Me, keep My commandments. doesn't say just listen to them, come to church and hear them, or turn around and teach them to somebody else. But He says, If you love Me, in John 14:15 keep my commandments the lord is depending on his churches to carry out this commission the world is de- is depending on us really to carry out this commission in fact to a local church this was written in philippians 2:15 we're told to be blameless and harmless the sons of god without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. I'll say it again. The world is depending upon us to reach them. We are to shine. We are to be different. You know, there's some Christians, they get really hung up on that. Oh, I just want to I want to homogenize and just fit in and, and be part of the system. That's not what we're supposed to be. I'm not saying be weird. I'm not saying be abrasive. But the Bible does call us peculiar. And it doesn't mean we're, we're strange. It just means in the world's eyes we are. In God's eyes, we're normal. And and here's what we're told again to do. Be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. God help us to shine. So every New Testament church needs reminders of what our function is, what our mission is, what our, our purpose is, what we're supposed to be accomplishing whether it's through the preaching, uh, the Sunday school program, visitation, bus ministry, print shop, the youth ministry, radio station, the Bible college, the campus ministry, uh, the missionaries that we send or we support, we are to be accomplishing these things. Now, Satan has uh, turned many a church into a social club. And and they're into just kind of the activities and all that kind of thing. But turn to John chapter 4, just a few pages back. May God help us never to, to suffer the fate that the church at Ephesus suffered within a matter of decades. Here's what Christ told His church in John 4 and in verse 35. He said, Say ye not that there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest? Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look On the fields, for they are white already to harvest. You know, it must have been harvest time there in the Holy Land, and Christ probably used this as a a, a wonderful visual aid, an illustration for the disciples to, to get it. They were more concerned about eating at that time. Christ at this time was dealing with this lost woman, and he tells them to lift up their eyes and look on the field. We need to look on the fields. We need the upward look. We need the outward look. We don't need the inward look. You know, the problem with so many churches is they turn inward. And the problem with so many Christian people is they turn inward. And when we do, we get our feelings hurt. And everything within a church screeches to a halt when God's people are offended and they have the attitude of poor, poor little me. We need continual reminders. It's not about us. We find this in 1 Corinthians 1.10. Paul says to that church in turmoil, Now I beseech you, I beg you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Notice, and you find these throughout the New Testament all over the place. Get along as a church. Is there anyone you're ticked at right now in this this room? (laughs) Anyone who's offended you? Bothered you? God help us. So, we see the mission outline, but secondly, if I might borrow Brother Sargent's little outline, we see the mission organized. The mission organized. Now, in the first century, I mean, they ate, slept, they drank, they, whatever, when it came to God's work, they were fully immersed in it. In fact, look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There was preaching going on every night, I believe. I believe they worked their jobs during the day, and, and then they, uh, they had services at night. So let's first of all talk about when it comes to the, the mission or the function organized, it involves preaching. When I grew up in a church that was not biblically based, we didn't use the word preaching. In fact, we thought it was a funny term. I remember the neighbor kid next door went to the same church as me, and, and we would kind of even mock that kind of a preaching. And uh, we thought that was kind of funny. But preaching is a biblical concept and there's a premium placed on it. In 1 Corinthians 1 and in verse number 18, it says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Verse 21, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Verse 23, But we preach, Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So notice the importance of preaching. It's mentioned here. We preach to the lost, obviously. We preach to the saved. We're trying to exhort God's people. In fact, we have preaching or teaching on Sunday morning at 9.30. We have it again. At 10.30, we have it again in the evening at 6 o'clock. And boy, I'll tell you, before I was a born-again Christian, that would have really seemed over the top. But if that isn't enough, we come together again on Wednesday night. We have special services. We have one coming up here. Uh, we have a, a seminar on Saturday. We also take the preaching into the jails. We preach on the radio station. We preach on the cable uh, access channel. Uh, we live stream preaching. Uh, we take preaching into the nursing home. We take preaching up onto the local campuses because we believe that God uses preaching. Look in Acts chapter 5 if you would. Acts chapter 5. Secondly, after preaching... Uh, We engage in biblical teaching. And and honestly, I I think sound preaching ought to involve teaching. There's a lot of preaching that doesn't really say a whole lot, but I believe it it should involve some teaching. Notice here in Acts chapter 5, the last verse of this chapter, verse 42 says, "...and daily in the temple and in every house they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ." Notice, they're in the temple. And that was kind of their hangout. They didn't really have a church building just yet. But it says daily. That's why I said they met all the time. Daily in the temple, notice, and in every house, they cease not to teach and to preach Jesus Christ. Now, there's a time for teaching. This is teaching time, by the way. That's what we normally do at this hour every week. Uh, We also do that more on on, uh, the Sunday school hour, on Sunday mornings. In fact, uh, the Sunday morning service... Is normally evangelistic in nature. The Sunday night service is kind of an admonition. Both of them are an admonition for the heart. They they have a, a I guess a special flavor along those lines. And 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 honestly, we could we could get up and rah rah rah, you know, at every service. But there is a time when we need to give the Bible doctrine and so on. So uh, we we kind of hold that for this service and for the training hour. And by the way, we all learn the same lesson on Sunday morning at 9.30, and there's a reason for that. As families, you can go home, you can talk about it, that kind of thing. But teaching is important. Is important. So there's preaching, there is teaching. Thirdly, there is visitation. Visitation is a function within a local church. Now, I'll never forget the uh, first time I mentioned uh, going out on visitation to an unsaved person who was actually a relative of mine. I didn't think they'd even know what it was but I'd only been saved a matter of a couple of months maybe. And I had to go. They were, they were hoping I could stick around. I said, well, I have visitation tonight. And you, I'm telling you, if Luke's going to kill, they knew what it was. <laughs> and to them, that was unthinkable that you would actually take your religion to somebody's doorstep. And you would actually take the gospel and, and, and bring it to people. Well, look in Acts chapter 20. Is there something wrong with that? Is that unscriptural? Or is there a a biblical reason why we do that. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says in verse number 20, he says, And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the gospel in verse 21. And he's telling us what he would what he would uh, bring door-to-door as well as he would, he would teach it publicly. We have a visitation program here at Fargo Baptist Church, and, and, and Doug runs it. Uh, it's not haphazard. It is organized. At least we try and make it organized. And we try and follow the biblical pattern of, of folks going out two by two. For the most part, we call on new arrivals in town. We make callbacks on people. Uh, We make first-time contacts. We also go into hospitals and nursing homes and and shut-ins. We also use the bus ministry, which, by the way, is a tremendous ministry. And and really a, a labor of love. And uh, by the way, we had a record attendance this last Sunday in our, in our bus ministry, and we, we thank God for that. It is a financial burden, no question about that. You say, man, owning those buses, and, and you know what the price of gas is, and the maintenance and all that. Yeah, but what is one's soul worth? Amen. It's worth more than the whole world. And in fact, uh, we have folks sitting here today. One was sitting at the organ just a second ago, and the piano. and And folks that have come directly or indirectly into the church because we were out bus calling. And and uh, we were reaching folks. And it isn't a it is an incredible amount of work, and a lot of work goes into it every single week, a lot of man hours. Which by the way, we still could use a bus driver. Please pray about that. But it's worth it. It's worth it. So that's part of our evangelistic effort. Literature is also a part of our evangelistic effort. And they say that eighty I think eighty percent of all people who come to a saving knowledge of Christ do so through the written word, through the, the printed page. And so it's very, very important. I, uh, actually, I can say personally, it was very instrumental in my own salvation. I was reading Chick tracks before I got saved, Chick comic books. That's kind of my mentality. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm telling you, God really dealt with me from those. And by the way, the Faith for Life coming out in a few weeks. Uh, we have a, a print shop. We're just moving over to a new building, a lot more room. And uh, we hope to take it to the next step. A lot of work to do there. Which brings me to uh, the missions ministry of this church. We're talking about the nuts and bolts, the missions ministry. Every New Testament church should be missions-minded. Very important that we have a heart for missions. We are, we are into sending our own missionaries. We are into supporting other missionaries. Uh, in fact, look in Acts chapter 8. We're here right now. We just had one of our missionaries to Russia uh, address our, our church trustees or church leaders recently, and pointed out something in a verse here in Acts chapter 8 that is really amazing. Verse 1. After the stoning of Stephen, it says, And Saul was consenting or agreeing unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Notice, if this reads right, they we're all speaking of christian people all scattered throughout judea and samaria except those in full time service if you will we have this exactly backwards have you have you noticed that we say well those in full time service you get out there you get that mission field you win souls in africa and thailand and russia and so on and uh, we'll stay here and hold the ropes well, in biblical times, the ones who stayed behind were actually the ones who, according to Ephesians 4, were to uh, complete or mature or to grow up the Christians for them to go out there and do that. You know, in the years to come, and, and, and this is even going to get more exciting, we want to have stations or at least housing in places like uh, Russia, certainly Africa. We've been talking about Belize and, and, and even Puerto Rico and uh, Thailand, where you can take missions trips. By the way, this all ties in with your personal finances. I wish I had time to go there, but I just really wish God's people would see the need to get in the driver's seat financially so that they could take short-term mission trips for a month or, or even more because I'm telling you, it is life-changing. Really pray about that. Really consider that. Um, look in Philippians chapter 4. We, we have this, this missions thing totally backwards where the, the people stay home and the hired guns, they, they go overseas but that it wasn't like that in bible times now something else about about missions and and that is the giving of missions here uh the goal is to as a church give to missions obviously because god blesses a very uh, in a very real way a missions minded church that's not why we do it but there is something about the blessings of god on a church that really cares about missions in philippians 4 notice picking it up in verse 15 to save time Paul says, Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. He's talking about financial giving. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound, I am full having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, in other words, a, a love offering or financial support, he calls it an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable and well-pleasing unto God. He's talking about giving here. As a, as a missions-minded church, we ought to be given to missions. You know that uh, in probably February of 1987, we'd only been going for about a month as a church from the time we started we had our a little meeting, actually, it was really little because it was my wife and I. <laughs> that was the church back then. But I was just in the old building this last weekend and I looked at that, that room that was my office, and I'll never forget where my wife and I sat down, we talked and, and uh, said, you know what, we as a church ought to be given to missions. Now at that time we ourselves were being supported about twelve hundred dollars a month. We were living in the church basement and really using the bulk of the money that came in for the ministry. We didn't have two nickels to rub against each other, and we needed every dime of that support. But we took on that night two missionaries. And I've never looked back, never regretted that. I, I think of the, the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars this church has given to mission, and maybe it, it might be in the millions, I haven't even checked here, but I, I, I know that God blesses a missions-minded church. And uh, so God help us to be givers. By the way, giving to missions is not the tithe. The tithe and a special offering or, or an offering are separated even in the Bible. We find in Deuteronomy 12:17 where it mentions the tithe of thy corn, speaking to the farmers, or thy freewill offerings. They weren't the same thing. They were two different things. And the tithe means the tent. And then the free will offering is above that, which you want to just give to missions. And missions again is the lifeblood of a New Testament church. It's that important. And we at, at this church take it seriously, and we also make sure that we support missionaries of, of like faith and practice, doctrinally sound, even philosophically sound. We are we are really getting pickier when it comes to missions and looking for those who are doing it and in an in an indigenous way because that's the Bible way. Well, boy, we got a lot of nuts and bolts that we could talk about. Where would the time go? Uh, We're going to cut it off here. I'd really like to share with you a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes in a church like this, uh, but we'll pick it up next time. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.